that if the world was designed for me explicitly, it would be you who would be disabled because you would find it difficult to bend over to reach things, to climb into things, to figure out how to mitigate your own body within that environment. You're listening to Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties, trivialities and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life, but what might we be getting wrong? In this series, I'll be exploring outrage culture, arrival fallacy and the perils of instant gratification and lobbing some pretty big questions at my guests like, why do human beings find change so hard? What would a more inclusive society look like? And what is the difference between optimism and hope? This is a podcast that looks at the little things and the big things and asks, what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. Sinead Burke is an activist, broadcaster and author. In 2018, she gave a TED talk called Why Design Should Include Everyone on how the fashion industry and the architecture in modern society fails to include disabled people. If you haven't listened to it, I implore you to do so. It's one of the most thought-provoking and fascinating talks I have ever listened to. The leading disability advocate in the world of fashion and design, Sinead was selected by Meghan Markle as one of 15 forces for change to appear on the September 2019 cover of British Vogue, and she was the first little person to ever attend the Met Gala. She is also the author of an upcoming children's book, Break the Mould, which comes out in October. I met Sinead very briefly a year ago and felt speechless after I left her company. I've since learned that everyone who meets Sinead feels like that. I'm so glad to have an excuse to talk to Sinead again. Her work is proof that success and kindness are not mutually exclusive and that in order to allow everyone to exist in public spaces, we must include them in the way that we design them. I'm a little person. I have a chondroplasia, which is the most common form of dwarfism. I stand at the height of three feet, five inches tall. And instead of just looking at me and my disability as something that is medically challenging or to be considered, actually, we have moved it to looking at a social model of disability. So what I mean by that is it's not my dwarfism that makes me disabled, but it is exactly that in terms of the built environment, that if the world was designed for me explicitly, it would be you who would be disabled because you would find it difficult to bend over to reach things, to climb into things, to figure out how to mitigate your own body within that environment. And I think now we're moving even further into a human rights model. You know, what is the obligation of a modern society to provide for all people and all citizens? And I think for me, what is really encouraging to see is that we are rethinking all of those things, whether it is looking at historic and listed buildings and saying that, you know, they can't be made accessible because of the prevalence of the architecture. But, you know, asking questions like when do we stop putting architecture before people? Your TED talk was your springboard into the fashion and design industry. It's incredible what you have achieved since then. How did the response to your talk change you or the conversations that you were having? Doing that TED Talk was the most nervous that I've ever been. I almost didn't do it because I just didn't feel like I was qualified. I felt like as a disabled person with a background in education, I was an imposter talking about design, that it should be left to somebody who 
was a designer and an expert in that field. And I think since that moment and having to stand on stage without an autocue and talk to people and then embedding myself not just in design but within fashion and being able to instigate conversations and action and changes within the fashion industry at a luxury level, I think what has changed for me is my level of confidence um, but also my level of responsibility that, you know, whatever about being one of the voices who is participating in this movement, but it can't only be me. And what can I do to make sure that whatever doors are open for me or I get to open, I do the same for somebody else. The practical side has been at the root of your work. When you were told by retailers, well, we can't make the clothes um, for different bodies. We don't have a way to display them. And you made a mannequin of your body and you said, here, here's the mannequin. What has happened since you created the mannequin of your body? Are there stores that have bought the mannequin? Are there stores that are looking at how they can make clothes or adapt clothes for little people? The mannequin came about with a project at the National Museums of Scotland as part of an exhibition that they were doing on diversity in fashion. And in many ways, I was so privileged to be a part of it. And also, you know, a small museum in Scotland, though, punches above its weight proverbially. You know, it's interesting that a museum like that was the first institution of its kind to do an exhibition of this subject matter. At the minute, those mannequins are in museums in different parts in the world, but they are not yet in retail. And I think in terms of how I think about change, I look at it as a, an entire ecosystem. And for me, it's about wondering, is the solution to create a line of clothes for little people? Or is it actually looking at innovation and adaptation as something that can be customised and appropriate for everyone? So by that, I mean that there is a spectrum of heights within the little people community like there is within the average height community. I am smaller than most. What I'm doing at the moment is working with a number of startup companies, but also a number of luxury brands. So working at both levels of the ecosystem and actually looking at what are the three ways in which we can make clothes adaptive and customizable, not just for little people, but all people in general. And for me, that is alterations in terms of sleeve length and jacket length. So for me, that's very specific in terms of the length of the sleeves. But you might also like a crop jacket, Pandora, or you might like a three quarter length sleeve because aesthetically, that's just what you feel most comfortable in. And then it's looking at fabric. So for those who are on the autism spectrum or who have sensory challenges, making sure that the fabric doesn't irritate their sensitivities is incredibly important. But by catering to that, we're also making sure that everybody is more comfortable. And then the third piece is in terms of the fixtures. So making sure that, you know, there is an alternative to buttons, whether that is magnets, whether that is Velcro. And again, that has use for everybody because it's ease of access. But it's about branding and marketing and positioning these things as not something that is a medical salvation for those who need it, but is something that provides more comfort, provides more options and provides, you know, ease of access for absolutely everybody. I would love to wake up tomorrow and for there to be little people mannequins and clothes for little people in every retailer. But I'm also really conscious that in terms of progress, any change that happens that quickly does not impact the system in a nuanced or sustainable way. Because what I'm looking for is entire systemic change, right? I want to be thinking about these things and not just from a product level, because in many ways, perhaps that's easier than changing the people who get to sit around a boardroom table or changing the CEO. You know, I want to see a little person or a disabled person as creative director or CEO for one of the biggest fashion companies in the world. And I genuinely believe that that's possible. And I think it's about, for me, I have kind of long-term and short-term goals. I would love to see those mannequins in place, but I also don't want it to happen solely for the performance of it. I imagine that one of the biggest challenges is how to 
introduce something that's more reactive and bespoke to the market without prices shooting up. Because obviously it's not inclusive if it's at a price that so many people can't afford. Absolutely. And you then have to straddle the boundaries of, you know, if you're looking to bring in something at a cheaper price, what are the labour costs? Where are things being made? And then having a conversation around sustainability. And I don't think sustainability and accessibility or inclusivity should be mutually exclusive. I think they should be joined together. So it's about looking at the business model that, say, for example, if adding customization costs an additional 20%. How do we incorporate that into the overall business model? Does everything increase by 20% and is everybody taking on a part of the pricing burden to ensure that it's accessible to everybody? Or is there a different structure and model? And so many of those things are still being considered. You know, I think we've seen many brands who all of a sudden increased their prices and no longer were customers able to afford them or wanted to. And I think it takes real thought, research and education. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges about this space is that there's so little data and so little information gathered because these questions just haven't been asked before. You know, even if we look at kind of how the world isn't designed for women and by women, I mean, straight cisgendered, you know, kind of able-bodied women, we're seeing things still like, you know, airbags and cars. And if we're still not considering women who are over 50% of the population, at what point do we discuss the one in five or the one in four who are disabled? I think that's such an interesting point you make. I remember being so surprised when I read in, I think it was probably Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez, but every office temperature is set to the temperature that is comfortable for a man in a suit. But obviously a suit is bulkier than what most women wear at work. So as a result, most women are too cold in the office. And I, it suddenly reminded me of when I'd worked at a newspaper and there would often be women with blankets on their laps or like, you know, with oversized cardigans they'd found in the corner draped around their shoulders. And as you say, if even the most privileged among us are still finding issues in the way the world or society has been constructed, what does that say about how we are looking after everyone else? Absolutely. And you realise there is so much work to do. And I think it's easy to be overwhelmed by the challenge. But actually, what we need to do is to be motivated by it and realise that, you know, it's about asking questions. It's about being an ally in a way that's not performative or focusing on your own visibility of your actions. Um, but actually, there's creative opportunities within it, too. And I think it's about kind of restructuring systems again. That You know, the reason why offices are designed like that is because they were designed by men for men, right? And actually what happens when we change who gets to be in the room, when we change who gets to be in positions of power where decisions are being made? Undoubtedly what changes is the ideas and somebody saying, oh, actually, do you not think we should also consider women? Or, you know, I think it's a great idea that we design public bathrooms, but do you not think that there should be two small sinks so at least anybody who has children, never mind just disabled people, don't have to lift their child from the floor over the sink in order to wash their hands? And I think it just illuminates the types of people and experiences that have got to create our world. And now is an opportunity, more than ever, where we can change that. You mentioned there how useful it would be to have two small sinks in a public toilet. And you've spoken extremely movingly in the past about the complications and mortification you face using a public toilet, something that able-bodied people don't even have to think about when we use the loo. Could you expand on that a little bit for us? The first thing I do is go into the women's bathroom. And when I go to the cubicle, 
it's often my experience that I can't reach the lock on the door. And there's a whole process by which I go through in order to try to do that. The first thing is I look around and I see if there's a bin. And if there is one, I drag it over into the cubicle, try not to dirty my hands or myself too much. And I stand on it and I lock the door. If there is no bin, I try to use my phone and I deliberately have a very large phone so that I can thwack the lock across, hoping I can thwack it open again. And if that doesn't work, I take off my coat and my bag and I lay them on the ground, hoping that somebody outside can see that there's a person inside. And if those things don't work, I approach a stranger in the queue and say, hi, my name is Sinead. I know that this is awkward and uncomfortable and we're in a bathroom, but I really need to go. Could you please stand outside and make sure nobody comes in? And my independence is rooted in strangers' kindness. And they will always say yes and make sure that you feel safe and independent in that space. And when I come out of the cubicle, then it's the dilemma of washing my hands. You know, I cannot reach the sink, the soap dispenser or the hand dryer. And I often bring hand sanitizer with me. And that's not a real solution. But because of design, there are such limitations to my experience. And my other option is to go to the disabled or the accessible bathroom. And when I go in there, I can lock the door. I can reach the sink the soap dispenser and the hand dryer but I cannot use the toilet because it is deliberately designed higher so that wheelchair users can transfer from their chair to the toilet which is really important and incredibly necessary but again in talking about design principles even when we're designing spaces for disabled people what kinds of disabled people are we designing for so it leaves me in this kind of duo experience of having to use the toilet in the women's bathroom and then having to use you know the sink in the accessible bathroom and You know, this isn't just an experience that the disabled community face, but also the trans community in terms of if we don't design public bathrooms for a diversity of people, we are literally stating who gets to be in public spaces because you can only exist out in public for a certain amount of time until you need the bathroom. That is human nature. And if we are not designing bathrooms for people, we are saying to them, you are not welcome here. You cannot be here for the amount of time that you wish. And that is so damaging and harmful and you know bathrooms are about dignity they are about your pride they are about your own comfort or lack of discomfort and you know moments like that you can naturally attribute such shame to and I think it goes back to that kind of medical social and human rights model it's not my fault I can't reach or use the bathrooms somebody just didn't think of me when they were designing them and now that we know And people like me and lots of other different types of people have voices and are using their voices. Now's the time to change it. I think there can be no greater illustration of how design and architecture as a whole links to human rights. I think we often think of um, those things as quite abstract, um, that, you know, design or what a building looks like, um, oh, it doesn't really affect us. The people who think that are the people who don't ever have to think about it not serving them. You primarily work in the fashion industry, an industry which can be dismissed, I don't agree with these statements by the way, but can be dismissed as frivolous or not the real world. Why did you choose the fashion industry or did it choose you? I was in university studying to be a teacher and I always wanted to be a teacher from my very first day of school. I think I saw the classroom and saw the school as 
a place where both anything could happen, but anything was possible. And that was despite never having a teacher who looked like me or ever really contemplating if it would be possible or more difficult for me to be a teacher who was a low person. But I'm incredibly lucky that I have the most supportive family. And when I told my parents that I wanted to be a teacher, they did nothing but encourage that dream. And as the eldest of five children, I have three sisters and one brother. But as the only one of my brothers and sisters who was a little person, you know, I think I spent a lot of my teenage years in particular being the eldest but being the smallest and watching as my sisters were able to access fashion in a way that I couldn't. They could pick up things and just try them on straight away and almost wear them out of the shop. They could reach things off rails and not have to think about climbing or asking for help. They could go to the cashier desk and pay with again without having to ask for help. And, you know, they could turn to a magazine and maybe not see somebody who looked exactly like them, but definitely closer. And I think that feeling of being left out, of being ostracized from something in a way that I didn't necessarily think was deliberate. So when I was in university, one of the assignments that we had when we were training to be teachers was to create a blog. And the idea of the blog as a teacher was that you would have a classroom blog. And every day you would denote what was happening in your classroom, what you were doing in the various subjects. And it was a kind of an aid to help parents because children come home from school every day and a parent says, what did you do today? And the child says, nothing. So it was to try and be a vehicle between home and school. But the lecturer at the time said, you can write about anything you want in this blog assignment. Now, what he meant was you can write about anything within education, but that's not what he said. So I wrote about Kate Blanchett wearing Givenchy Couture to the Oscars and how important it was that she wore A, Couture, and B, this dress and what it meant. And he, like, accepted it and was like, thanks very much. I'm not sure why this is interesting or important, but thank you. And I think going back to that feeling of, of being left out and seeing my sisters being able to buy things and wear things and just you know they didn't even have to think about it and I think that more than anything the lack of cognitive dissonance that they had between them and what they got to wear and I just remember feeling like I need to do something about this and I didn't have any grandiose ambition of what that would look like but actually what I needed more than anything was to arm myself to upskill myself that I felt like you know even if I couldn't buy what it was I wanted to wear if I knew that that dress in a fast fashion store was supposed to be to Stella McCartney from three seasons ago I got a weird kind of joy out of that so I used to sit and read WWD the business of fashion the New York Times the Washington Post the Financial Times in terms of the fashion sections every day and I would say to my parents every evening at the dining room table what is Adidas going to do? And my mother would say, you know, I'm going to regret this, but what do you mean? And I'd say, well, what are they going to do? Because, you know, Phoebe Philo has left Celine. And how are they going to make sure that, you know, the women are wearing Stan Smiths again? Who's going to be the brand ambassador? What are they going to do? Because Nike have taken Colin Kaepernick. Sales went down 3%, then went up 21%. You know, Beyonce and Kirby from Pierre Moss and, and Kimberly Drew, they're all going to Reebok. And maybe Beyonce will go to Adidas. What will they do? And I said, I know what they'll do. They'll make a vegan Stan Smith with Stella McCartney and, you know, they'll maintain the fashion audience. And my mother was, you know, she used to say, that's lovely. <laughs> Is there anybody else in the world that you can talk to about this? And the people that I went to school with didn't want to talk about it, you know, because they, I guess in many ways they didn't have to. They didn't need to know these intricacies of the fashion industry. I felt like I did because it was my way in, even if I couldn't buy clothes. And I think that was the root of my interest. And I think, you know, the comments about fashion being facetious, the comments about it not being the real world do have some validity. But I'm always really intrigued by if I meet somebody for the first time 
and they don't know what it is I do and they ask. And if I say that I work in fashion, you know, without even meaning to, they almost roll their eyes and they discredit you. And they say, oh, well, what about the ethics of the industry? And the fashion industry has a lot of problems um, that absolutely need to be given attention to from how it works with factories and manufacturers in developing countries to its lack of sustainability, to its lack of diversity, to its lack of, you know, there are so many lack ofs within the fashion industry. But if I talk to somebody and they say that they work in sport, my immediate response isn't to question doping in the Tour de France or the amount of money that footballers are paid to like run around for 90 minutes. And that is being, you know, that is simplifying a very complex athleticism and demonstration of athleticism. But, you know, critiquing the fashion industry is also simplifying a very complex display of craft and manufacturing. And I think the fashion industry is an industry that is dominated by female and queer voices. And I wonder, is that some of the reason why it's so easy to critique it? I used to experience some of that as a fashion writer. There are a set of assumptions drawn when you work in fashion. It can feel very frustrating and limiting. It's those biases that are entrenched in our society and in the world. And, you know, I think we all have them. We've been conditioned by them. And, you know, we all find ourselves saying things and then kind of thinking back on our head. And I think we all have a job to to rewind on those biases and to challenge ourselves. And that's not to be... um, placid regarding the challenges of the fashion industry or the challenges of sport but actually to realize that everybody's interests are valid even if they're not interesting to you. There have been many shocking occasions where people have treated you not as a human being but as their entertainment. The man who leapfrogged over you while his friend filmed or the group of drunk strangers who picked you up and chucked you around the dance floor while you were out at night. It's such a graceful and generous thing for you to do, to respond to these horrible experiences that made you feel so humiliated and scared by going into schools to educate students about treating disabled people with dignity and respect. When did you realise that you wanted to educate people, not from a distance, but by going into their spaces and speaking directly with them? I think I have always been very aware that due to my disability and due to the body that I live in, that I'm continuously the centre of attention. It is often my experience that when I walk into a room, I am the only one who looks like me. And I think I knew from a very young age that some people's interest in me would be rooted in curiosity and they would want to know more, particularly children. And then other interests would be rooted in ignorance and every now and again maliciousness. And my personality has been shaped by that. You know, I talk about myself as an extroverted introvert. I am never happier than when I am in my own company or with just one or two people. Um, But that ability to, like, perform is probably the reason why I was able to do a TED Talk because I've spent my life being on a proverbial stage in a way. And, yeah, my experience for my whole life has been that regularly I would be just walking down a street and somebody would point, stare laugh call me names and with the evolution of camera phones and technology that then became a part of it where people would just take your photograph or take a video of you without your consent and you would have constant worries and concerns about where that footage would end up and I remember just walking down a street and a car pulling over right to where I was standing and then winding down the window to take a photograph and a video of me and then driving off once they'd obtained their content 
And yeah, being in nightclubs in my late teens and, you know, people with alcohol in their system when inebriated having less concerns than they previously would and thinking it was funny or humorous to prove to the people around them by picking me up and... Yeah, and like meeting two teenage boys on the street in Dublin late last year and thinking nothing of it until 30 seconds later, one of them leapfrogged from the ground over my head, all the while his friend recorded it. And I'm small, but I'm not that small. And I think what upset me most in that moment was not necessarily that it happened, but was the audacity and the confidence that they had that they would succeed in jumping over me. There was no concern that they might miss. And they, he could have. And what harm would he have caused if he did? And it was that thirst for being viral on the internet or having a moment of fame. Actually, that outweighed any harm that could have been caused. And I think my solution to everything has always been trying to be constructive. I think it's really important to acknowledge your own feelings. And in each of those moments, I was really upset. I was upset because I felt othered. I felt like their actions made me less of a person, or at least that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to articulate that I wasn't the same as them and I was different in a way that wasn't worth celebrating. But my family are the most amazing people. When I was seven years old, my parents founded Little People of Ireland and over the past 20 years voluntarily have cultivated this entire community of people who look like me and their families and have created a space where We can be ourselves. We can ask questions about where did you get that dress from or I'm being bullied in school or I'm up for promotion in my job and I know my boss isn't going to give it to me because I'm a little person. And actually being able to be part of that has changed and shaped me. And my advocacy really started from there because parents of little people were coming to me and saying, my child is getting a really tough time in the playground. Can you help You know, the teacher doesn't know what to say. The teacher's afraid to say the wrong thing. The principal feels like it's not the time for them to be involved. And the last thing my child wants is for me, their mother, to come into the school wagging my finger at the boys and girls in their class and saying, don't do this. So could you come in? And I naively said yes. I was like, sure, I'll rock up to this strange school and not know any of these people and just talk. Um, And I shared stories of my own lived experience and really tried to narrate, I think tried to narrate the underlining tenet that We are all different. And what makes me different is just much more obvious. And in many ways, it's really helpful because I walk into a room and already people will have to figure out how to make that environment accessible to me, either with their language or with the built environment itself. But, you know, Pandora, maybe you have your own challenges and struggles that are less obvious. It's likely, right? Because we all experience that. But explaining to the children that despite those differences... We are all people and we need to make accommodations and allowances for the injustices that exist based on different differences. But there's universality in that experience. And really that began an advocacy journey that I never expected. I never preempted. The sole purpose was to go in and help a kid who felt lonely and was hurt because I think there's moments when we've all been that kid and... I wanted somebody to come and do that when I was in school, but there wasn't anybody. And it has led to going into more and more schools and and the work that I now do. And I think reflecting back on that and reflecting on the moments that have been most challenging for me personally. You know, when it happened when that boy leapfrogged over me in the middle of the street, my thinking afterwards, you know, I rang the police and I reported it and they, they took it seriously. But afterwards, I was kind of thinking, you know, if these boys and these young men are caught by the police even if they're reprimanded, 
What do they learn? They don't learn how that moment made me feel. All they learn is that if they do it again, they shouldn't get caught and maybe keep an eye out for the CCTV next time. So actually looking back at my experience as a teacher and as an advocate, trying to come up with a constructive approach that will actually make a difference. And that difference is not for me because I am very lucky and privileged in so many ways that, you know, I have a platform on on Instagram or on Twitter or if I wanted to write an article about what I experienced, I have those options. But other people who look like me who particularly are younger than me, they may not have those platforms. So what can I do to leverage the resources and the skills that I have to try to educate people to make sure that we're not having the same conversation in 10 years? So after that moment happened, I rang a friend of mine who worked for the Northeast kind of inner city, which is an education body. And I just posed the question to him and I said, how do we get into every school in the area? And he kind of laughed at me and I said, no, no, I'm serious. We need to do this. And I went into every primary and every secondary school in the area and spoke to them and showed them photographs, of course, of some of the famous people I met or being on the red carpet at the Met Gala, um, but also told them stories about how certain experiences have made me feel. And actually, it's all of our jobs to do and be better. And I think, yeah, I'm constantly trying to find a solution and not wallow in my own emotions, though I do do that for too long every now and again. Oh, Sinead, you're so inspiring. I wanted to ask you, how do you deal with the visibility of your activism? Just by being at a fashion dinner, for example, you are creating change by dint of your being there. But do you ever want to switch it off? Is it hard always being the only little person in the room or does it spur you on? I think it's interesting because most of the time I forget that I'm a little person, which probably sounds ridiculous, but, you know, most mirrors are out of my view line. So I often don't see what it is that I look like day to day. Um, but also that idea that, you know, the eyes through which I view the world don't reflect my personhood back at me. So it, it's until I come across either inaccessibility in design or people's biases or ignorance that I'm reminded, oh, yes, by the way, you're a little person. And I think we're all in this moment, anybody who is advocating for change in any industry where visibility has cultivated such currency, rightly so. And I think we're all trying to manifest that that phrase and that mantra of if you can see it, you can be it. And I think one of the things that will mark the next chapter of progress and change will be how do we move from visibility to decision making? And how do you make sure that you're not that your visibility alone is not enough for the changes in which you're trying to make and I think for me I am a Virgo which will tell you everything and nothing about myself but usually it just means that I overthink things to a worrying degree and I constantly try to come at things from lots of different angles and perspectives so I think visibility for me can be a useful tool to gain access it can be exhausting, but I'm also very privileged to be able to even say that something like that is exhausting. I think for me, the constant drive is, is that the solution cannot just be about me and my success. The solution cannot just be about me sitting front row at a fashion show, because whilst it is progress, is it, you know, mm. is it? And that's not me fishing for compliments from you, but this is kind of the the cognitive rhetoric and discussion that I go through with myself, that... How do we move beyond that? Because I think that's what's really important. It's not just about me being in the photograph, 
but me and others being the people to help shape the photograph, to shape the tone, to shape the language and to create the culture where anybody feels like they can be part of it. And also making sure that, you know, you're not the only one who gets to succeed at this. That great, brilliant. I am so proud to be able to say that I was the first little person on the cover of Vogue ever. But how long does it take for the second little person? How long does it take for a wheelchair user to be on the cover of Vogue and for it not just to be a a headshot, you know? How long until we see greater representation of all types of people, not just in imagery and in positions where visibility has currency, but doing the choir work too, pushing the pendulum, moving the biases and those who have power to think in new ways. filmed conversation with the British Vogue editor Edward Enifel recently and he said to you diversity sells and I think you both chuckled after that because we we are seeing overdue attempts at diversity across media and publishing we've seen as you mentioned quite a lot of performative allyship from brands for example who you know wouldn't book a black model or didn't like to use girls who weren't a size eight or treated staff within their company who weren't white uh, badly Do you worry about tokenism? Do you worry that change can be made at a superficial level, but not in a sort of systemic, in the bones of a company or an industry? Absolutely. I think that dichotomy between true authentic change and whether it is tokenism or visibility is a real challenge. And I think for me, it's often realizing that perhaps tokenism or quotas or visibility is the starting point. But as quickly as possible, you then need to move these companies from visibility to internal action and change. And I think we are still on that journey with so many. And I think maybe some companies and organizations are satisfied with doing the visibility piece. And I think it's also about knowing which minds and hearts you can't change and how much you exhaust yourself trying to do that and where your efforts are best focused elsewhere. And I think in terms of the business of diversity, it's a real challenge. For me, I proposition diversity and inclusion throughout three different lenses. So one, it's an opportunity for innovation and creativity in the sense of me as a person, I describe myself as organized, articulate and creative. And those are three skills that I have had to harness because I am a disabled woman. I'm organized in some aspects of my life because if I leave my house today, If I am going to go to a shop that has recently been opened, I need to already plan in my head, A, how far is it to the shop? Is there public transport that is accessible by which I can get there? When I get there, will I be able to reach the things that I need? Do I need to ring my sister or a friend to come with me? If it's for a coffee or for lunch, will I be able to get up on the chairs? Are they already too high? Is there a bathroom close by? When I go to pay, will I be able to pay myself or will I have to ask for help? And thinking through that process just to get a cup of coffee means that if I'm in a work environment and thinking through a project, that way of thinking is so naturally to me that I will do that for your project if I'm an employee. In the same way that the routine that I have to go through in order to lock a bathroom door means that I think of solutions all of the time. I am creative in my thinking naturally, and that has a value. And then in terms of being articulate, the reason why I can stand on stage and do a speech is because I've spent my life introducing myself to strangers for fear that they wouldn't talk to me. 
for fear that they would be nervous of saying the wrong thing, of doing the wrong thing. So out of their own nervousness, they would say nothing. And I never wanted to be isolated in that way. So I practiced from my first day of school onwards, introducing myself to strangers to instigate a conversation. And I think when we talk about the value of diversity, how many of us have skills explicitly shaped by what makes us different? and by the diverse identities that we hold. And that's all of us. So when we're thinking about hiring different types of people, that's the value of diversity. That's the value of having different thinkers, different ways of working within a company organization. And I think, you know, when we look at the disability model and you're trying to convince CEOs, CEOs are responsible to their shareholders. And what shareholders and CEOs are most interested in is the returning of profits every quarter or the increase of them. So if you can prove to CEOs that, you know, by bringing in disability as part of the way in which you're working, you have an opportunity to increase your profits by, you know, the spending power of the disabled community, which is a billion dollars each year. And I wish that businesses, governments and industry would include diverse people in a meaningful way because it is the right thing to do and because we all have human rights but I'm also a realist and realized that actually if I was waiting for that way of thinking in order for change to occur, uh, I would probably be needing my pension if I still existed on the planet. So whilst we're waiting for empathy to catch up in how we lead and how we do business, if proving the profit and loss value of diversity is a way for us to push open the door so that we never go back to the way in which we've worked ever again, that is a compromise that I'm willing to make for right now and to then translate the value beyond just profit margins that this entire new way of working is about. And that's through innovation, creativity and through building a long term company. You know, I think now more than ever, having just experienced a pandemic, when we are ripping up the proverbial floorboards of the ways in which we do business, now is the time to rethink it through a holistic lens and to make sure that everybody is as accommodated as possible because this is what customers want. This is what citizens need to vote for. And why not? If, why not be a leader in this field? Why not be an organisation and a company who cares about people and the planet? What's the risk? Sinead, you put that so beautifully. I don't know how anyone could listen to you talk and not and not want to help you because you have an answer to everything. It's incredible. And as you say, it comes from being so solutions driven because even in your everyday life, in every single tiny action that many of us wouldn't even think about, you had to come up with 10 solutions. I just don't have the privilege of being able to say that doesn't work. If I believed that, if I believed that what everybody in my whole life has told me is impossible, and I wouldn't be where I am today. But I'm so lucky that I was surrounded by people who never allowed me to think about that, even when others told me. Like, I remember being in university and somebody sitting beside me and asking me how I was going to be a teacher because the kids were going to be bigger than me. How would I control them and how would I reach everything? And in many ways, that was kind of the first time I thought about the inaccessibility of the classroom. I just assumed I would be able to do it and I would figure it out because that's what I had been doing for two decades. And I went home and I spoke to my parents and I said, I think I'm going to have to figure out a different career. I think I'm going to have to do something else, anything else. I don't think I'll be able to do this. And I'm so lucky that I've had people around me who just used to say to me, you know, if something's impossible, it doesn't mean there's another way around it. You just have to change your method and find a different solution. And 
that's what I fundamentally believe for everybody. You know, I don't think things are impossible. I think something might take longer. Change needs to happen first. But my whole kind of modus operandi is like, what's the big picture and how do we work backwards from that? You know, if the end goal is to be editor-in-chief of a magazine... It's not at the moment, but if it was, what is the steps towards it? Or if it's to be CEO of a fashion company or if it's to work in government to change policy internally or if it's to, you know, be unemployed as fast as possible because all of the things that you want to do are already done, then how do you get there? And I think with all of the opportunities that I've had, my responsibility is now to feed back that to others, to, you know, have Zoom calls with schools or to go in and do school visits or to speak to people who are in Central St. Martins or who are about to work in the fashion industry or who are disabled and don't know what their options are. My responsibility is to have those conversations and to share any value that I have to hope that it will be of benefit to them. You're incredibly close to your family. You've credited the love and encouragement you receive from your parents as the inspiration for your activism. You once said, and I found this so moving, of your father, a fellow little person, that he taught you not just how to survive in the world, but to thrive in it. Yeah, my dad is an incredible person and an incredible dad. Um, My mother is too, and I think, you know, when... My parents set up Little People of Ireland. They just did it with such selflessness. And it was because, you know, it was in the era before the internet. And when so many of their concerns, like, where would I get my school uniform from? What would I wear for my first Holy Communion? How would it fit? And, you know, realizing that the more information that they gathered, the more responsibility that they had to share it. But, you know, I think I was really lucky. 80% of Little People are born to average height parents, which means they are the only one in their families who looked like them when my parents were having children because my dad is a little person and my mother is average height. There was a 50-50 chance for each child. And of the five of us, I was the only one. But I had this tangible example for my whole life that everything would be okay. And that impacted me in ways in which I could never even measure. You know, I didn't even realise the importance of it or the value of it until I was much older and in many ways that's probably as well why I was interested in fashion because I think you know I was talking to my dad about fashion when I was growing up and what did he do and my dad is the best person in the world but would comfortably wear the same outfit for his entire life if he was (laughs) allowed you know and I was like why why would you like why would you not want 18 pairs of shoes and he was like Sinead you know a pair of Asics is fine it's you know that's that's enough but they have always been and my dad in particular you know so supportive of anything I remember the morning of the Met Gala, I was violently unwell with my nerves. I just, I felt like the whole world was watching and I felt like I couldn't speak for anybody but myself. Yet, by my presence alone, that would articulate something, a narrative that not necessarily I couldn't control, but that could be interpreted by other people. And I just, I felt overwhelmed by the pressure. And I rang home to Ireland and said to my dad, like, I don't think I can go. I think I need to get the next flight home from New York. I think I need to come home. And he said, Sinead, don't be so ridiculous. It's a party in a museum. Have a nice time. Take some selfies. See you later. And I was like, well, Anna has banned selfies, so we can't take selfies. But yeah, party in a museum, party in a museum, party in a museum. And they are just so great. And, you know, even now, I've just written a, a children's book and they are probably more heavily involved than my own editors in one way in that, you know, they've read every line of every manuscript and 
are just so supportive that even now at almost 30 years old, my parents still encourage my dreams. And I'm just very lucky because that's really rare. And yeah, I just try to be as as grateful for the family that I had no choice being born into, but was very lucky in the one that was picked for me. Break the Mould, that's the book that you were yes. talking about. That comes out in October. I'm very excited. Yes. I have pre-ordered it for my children. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, absolutely. I think so much of what I learned from being in schools and talking to children was really that tenet of we are all different, but there is more that unites us than divides us. And I think when I was a kid... I was really aware of what made me different. But I grew up sheltered without social media and the internet. And my access to culture was through a television or as I got a little bit older, through a desktop computer that had dial-up internet. And I think the forces that were around me, mostly my family, really cultivated my own confidence. And I think that's changing. And I think regardless of what type of child you are or you have in your family, we all need to be reminded of how brilliant you are and how we have the keys and the blueprint to break the mold and to make our dreams possible whatever they may be so it is hopefully a a toolkit for children from eight years plus who and it's also written so that adults can get something from it too but it is rooted in my lived experiences of some of the most important and challenging moments in my life and then making them broader so it's you know how to be different how to embrace your difference how to celebrate them what it means to be an ally in this modern world what design looks like and really it's you know what I'm really excited about is the children who read this book What will they do in 20 or 30 years? And I'm not trying to say that the book that I have written will guide them for the rest of their lives, but the opportunity, going back to education, to be able to allow children the opportunity to question things that maybe they've never questioned before because so many of our biases don't become rooted until we're 11, 12, 13, and even older. And being able to meet children at an age where they really do believe that anything is possible. And they really do believe that everybody has a value and everybody should be loved and everybody should be celebrated. And what is the potential of reinforcing that with them? And what do they then believe for themselves? So I have grandiose ambitions for my book and the reader, but it's just been such a gift to be able to share a part of myself with the next generation. It sounds completely brilliant and not to judge a book by its cover, but I do very much like the cover. At the heart of your work is kindness. It shines through everything you do, Sinead, and it's why I wanted to interview you so much. Do you hope we can all make decisions more kindly after the year this world has been through? Absolutely. I think kindness is so important, but I think it's really interesting how we define it. I think we often frame it within a feminised lens, and we think that kindness is something that women naturally do more easier than others. I don't think that's fair. I think we all know women who are not kind and we all know men who are. And I actually think it's, for me, kindness is very much tied to to vulnerability and in turn then to confidence. I think you have to be confident to be kind. I think kindness requires you to deliberately put yourself in a position of discomfort for the betterment of the other person or the other individuals. And actually, you need a huge amount of self-esteem to be able to deliberately do that to yourself and to your own ego. And I think if we took an approach that was less selfish 
and more selfless and more asking questions like how can we add value? How can we be of service? How can we help? How can we be of use? And that's not necessarily to a government or to an army or to a business, but that's to our friendships. That's to our partners and to our relationships. That's to ourselves. Because I think more than anything, we need to be kind to ourselves. And we are not very practiced or very good at it. And I think there are amazing examples of Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, AOC in the Bronx in New York, people who are putting themselves in service of a greater good and who are working with a purpose and a moral compass. And, you know, I think this moment, more than anything, is allowing us to reflect on what is it we stand for? And I don't know if you've watched Hamilton the musical, but there's a great line from Alexander Hamilton to Aaron Burr. And he says, if you stand for nothing, Burr, what will you fall for? And I think we all need to have something that drives us, that is greater than capitalism and that is hopefully more than just worrying about how we pay our rent but how can we contribute and how can we be citizens rather than consumers I think what you were saying there also reminded me as well something that I feel like we fall into the trap of doing is conflating niceness with kindness and they are very different things I think niceness is a sort of surface politeness um, and if someone's abrasive And we think, oh, well, they're not kind. What we actually mean is they're not nice. You know, I think when we talk about kind of niceness, it's it's a platitude. Mm, Um, mm. It is to be seen to be nice. Whereas, you know, if you are kind, you could be kind to yourself, which in turn means that you have to be not nice to somebody else because you are being kind to your own boundaries or whatever that may be. And I think kindness is rooted in external interests at heart or being led by a grander ambition or purpose. It's not sickly sweet and it's not please and thank yous, but it is thinking about a more common good that more than you profit from. Thank you so much, Sinead Burke, for coming on Doing It Right. This was such a treat. If you enjoyed this episode of Doing It Right, please do subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast platform so that you can enjoy more episodes out every Monday. 